And we'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1, and read uh, eight verses. First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Well, let me just give a very brief review of where we are here in this letter. Chapter 1, we saw that Paul was writing to his young co-worker Timothy, and urging him to remain on at Ephesus in order to straighten out, straighten out some of the problems, some of the difficulties in that young church. <clears throat> um, he was there. He was leaving Timothy there to get things properly organized. And uh, we saw that there was some problems, some really big problems in that situation. And uh, Paul knew that Timothy would have to Well, he'd have to fight the good fight of faith to deal with those things. He also knew that Timothy was equipped to do that. He he had been prophesied over. He had gifts that God had given him. And so he knew that he could uh, rely on him to remain there and deal with some of these things. There were strange doctrines that were being taught. People that were going astray, not keeping faith in a good conscience. Some were making shipwreck of their faith. So it was not an easy situation by any means. And basically what Paul was emphasizing to Timothy is to keep Christ central. I mean, that, that's what we always need to do, any place, any time. But uh, these people, in some ways, at least some of them, were missing the centrality of Christ. And they were missing out on the, what the goal of instruction in the Christian life really should be, which is uh, love. Love coming from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These people were going off track from those very basic things. So Timothy was to use the gifts that God had given him to help this new church be established in the truth. And like I say, uh, he was to fight the good fight of faith. There were enemies from within the situation there and enemies from without. The last time that I spoke... Uh, from First Timothy, we dealt with the subject of tr- church discipline. That's one of the areas that is often neglected, but it's necessary if you're going to keep a church healthy. Yeah, there has to be church discipline, and then we saw that in rela- relationship to two men that Paul specifically singled out, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And uh, the the main point, really, that I was trying to bring across uh, from the examination of church discipline was really this, that there are differing degrees of church discipline and that it takes real 
discernment, really real Holy Spirit discernment to exercise church discipline in a proper manner. So Paul goes on then from there to deal with the subject of the public gathering of God's people, what is sometimes called corporate worship. Now, we're not talking about some big corporation worshiping. That's not what we mean when corporate worship. It comes from the idea of the body, the body getting together. Corporal punishment, you know, has to do with physical punishment. So we're talking about corporate worship. We're talking about the gathering of the body of God's people. And I believe these uh, next sections are dealing with that. Paul's helping Timothy to understand how God's people should function as they come together uh, as a church. And so I want to introduce that. It's, it's a, definitely a more positive subject than what we looked at last time. Uh, but I want to introduce it by asking a question. If we were beginning a new church, what would we emphasize? Where would you put the emphasis? Would it be reading and studying the Word of God? Would it be preaching? Would it be a loving fellowship with one another? Or perhaps evangelism? Well, Paul says here, he says, first of all, the first thing, the most important thing, is prayer. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. How was this little group of believers there in Ephesus, how were they going to survive in the midst of a pagan society and uh, being surrounded by a sinful culture? Uh, with false teaching creeping in and uh, professing believers falling away. Well, Paul knew the answer to that and he wanted to make sure Timothy had the right emphasis. The answer is prayer, crying out to God. If the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, how are these things going to be produced in the life of the believer? They don't just happen. One of the main reasons... One of the main ways they're going to be produced is through prayer. Prayer. Calling on God, asking for help, asking Him to change things. Now those things that I mentioned uh, just a second ago, reading the Word, preaching, fellowship, evangelism, He brings those things out later on in the letter. It's not like they're not very important. But prayer is what will make those things effectual. Uh, God has to do it. You're not going to do those things on your own. You're going to have to look to God, you and I, as a church and as individuals. We have to have God intervene in our lives and then intervene in our midst if those things are going to be a reality. So Paul starts where, where we must start, and that's with prayer. So, again, I say this, I think this. he's thinking in terms of uh, the corporate situation here, that the, the gathering together of the, God's people. So when the church gathers, prayer should be prominent. If you don't get anything else out of my message, just, just remember that. When the church gathers, prayer should be pro- prominent. If the church is going to live in all godliness and dignity in a hostile world, Paul says prayer is of supreme importance. Uh, there's a quote here from Martin Luther that I like. He says, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to mend shoes, it is the business of Christians to pray. That's what we should be all about. Um, Now, that's true in private prayer, 
But he's thinking, I think, more here of public prayer. Not just when we're on our own, but when we gather together um, as a unit. We need to be emphasizing this area of prayer. Specifically, Paul goes on to urge prayers be made on behalf of all people. You see that? I urge the petitions and, and uh, thanksgivings, entreaties, prayers be made on behalf of all men. Verse 1. Not just our group, not just our friends, not just our family, not just our nationality, but all men. I, it's possible, considering the false teaching that was circulating there in Ephesus, that Paul was countering an attitude that salvation was only for a special elite class or race of people. You know, that was what many Jews thought. There was obviously a Jewish influence here, talking about uh, not understanding the law properly in verse 1. So uh, that was the attitude of a lot of Jewish people. That's the way they thought. We're God's people and... That's all that there is. The rest is our Gentiles and not not important to God. Uh, also, we mentioned that there was a Gnostic or the beginning of a Gnostic influence here. And that, again, you have a very elitist attitude there amongst uh, that type of thinking. They had a special, secret, uh, elite knowledge given to only a select few. Well, Paul's countering that clearly in these passages here. Paul wants Timothy to emphasize to these Christians that it is right to pray for all men, regardless of rank or race or religion. And to do that, in this section, he points out five great truths, five great truths that should help us to realize that we are to pray for all men. First, God desires all men to be saved. You see that in verse 4. Let's start reading at verse 3. It is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. So that's the first thing. He just says it about as clearly as you can say it. God desires all men to be saved. The next thing he says is that he is the one God. God is the one God over all men. Not a God for this group and a God for that group and another God for another group. There's one God and he's the God for all men. You see that in verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Third, there's only one mediator between the one true God and all people. What's a mediator? Well, he's one who stands between two parties and acts as a go-between. Someone in between two parties. And there's only one such mediator between a holy God and sinful man. And that's the man, Christ Jesus. So, fourth, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. You see how often he just brings it up over and over again, all people, all men. So, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. In him there is a... Uh, a ransom, a substitute of infinite value adequate for all people everywhere. That's in verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Testimony born at the proper time. And fifth, Paul, Paul's divine appointment was to take this good news of salvation to all nations. You see that in verse 7. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles. That's everybody. Everybody else, 
the Jews, the Gentiles, and all other nations. I was appointed as a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. He was appointed to take the good news to all nations. So, in light of these truths, what Paul's telling Timothy here to emphasize about prayer, in light of these things, we should never be narrow in our view of who God might save and who we can pray for. That's what Paul's trying to get across here uh, over and over to Timothy. Let these people know how wide the gospel can be presented and how wide our prayers can go for people to be converted. Entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving can be made on behalf of all men because Christ died for all people without distinction. He desires all men to be saved. Now that doesn't mean that he's decreed that every individual will be saved, but we can come to him in prayer as the one who has declared himself to be the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 10. For it is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So again, Paul's just wanting to get across and get us to feel and get Timothy to emphasize to these people the breadth, the length, the depth of the mercy and grace and and goodness of God and the good news to go out to all people. As John Newton said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. We should not view anyone as too young or too old or too rich or too poor or too wise or too foolish or too far above us or too far below us or too good or too bad to pray for their salvation. When we bring people to God in prayer, it does not matter who they are, where they live, or what they've done. God can save them. And if He does save them, They will all be on equal standing at the foot of the cross. If any man is in Christ, be in Christ, he's a new creation. There's no place for pride or prejudice in Christ. And Paul's, I think, partly here also stressing just our oneness in Christ and how God can bring people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation together as a unit, as a body, to worship Him. When we gather for prayer, there's no place for ill will amongst ourselves or other believers. Jesus taught this clearly in relationship to prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, If therefore therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. He also said in the Sermon on the Mount, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. So I think he's emphasizing that along this this sense of oneness, this sense of unity, this sense of God can bring anyone from anywhere into this great relationship of uh, of love and and fellowship in Christ. 
And I see that especially in verse 8, verse 8 where he says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You see two conditions for effectual prayer here. Holy hands and not having wrath and dissension in our hearts. I think he's talking, I think he wants us to think both of outward actions, the holy hands, and inward attitudes, not having wrath or dissension. Outward actions, inward attitudes are important to God. Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord. When we come to God in prayer, we must realize that we, our hearts and our hands must be cleansed continuously by Christ. If there's wrath and dissension, it needs to be dealt with so that we can lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. That's how you come to God. If there's wrath and dissension, if there's impurity there, it needs to be dealt with. Yeah. So he's talking about this subject of prayer. He's talking about praying for all people. And uh, I want to go back and examine verse 2 in a little more detail where he talks about praying for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Though Paul is emphasizing that we can and should pray for all men, he specifically mentions praying for kings and those in authority. So, Sometimes it's good to ask yourself the question, why did he do that? Why would he specifically mention rulers and authorities? Well, perhaps it's partly due to the fact that these were the people least likely to be prayed for, since they were very often antagonistic to the gospel. And also that very few Christians at that time seemed to be coming from that, that group of people people in high positions. But Paul actually spe specifically tells us why we should pray for this group of people. He says, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he's telling you right there why we should pray this way. Now, he's not saying that we should pray for those in authority so that we could lead easy lives. You would never get that from the rest of the scriptures, and that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, his desire is that the way of Christ would be advanced. That's what's always prominent in Paul's mind. It should be in ours too. Uh, I think the idea is that there would be freedom from outward disturbances such as wars and persecutions and crimes, so the spread of the gospel would be facilitated. Also, public gathering for worship is much more accessible in a peaceful, non-persecuting environment. So what he's saying here, and what I think part of what at least he's, he's wanting us to think about, is the fact that good government and good laws provide a better setting for Christian living and community. 
Pray for kings and those in authorities in order that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We're to pray that those in authority would rule as God intended them to rule. How do we know what that is? Well, he tells us that in Romans 13. Those in authority, if they would rule in accordance to God's way for rulers, would encourage good behavior, they would restrain evil behavior, behavior, and they would punish wrongdoers. That's what he tells. Well, let's look at it. Romans 13. Let's just turn back there. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. That's what a ruler should be, a cause for fear for evil behavior. Do you want... To have no fear of authority, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. The government should praise those who do good. He's just telling what government should be like here. Um, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. <coughs> Bearing the sword has to do with the, the police function, the military function. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about bearing the sword. Uh, for he is a minister of God, an avenger to bring, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. That's what the government should do, bring wrath upon those who practice evil. Uh, wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Well, he goes on to talk about paying your taxes and such things as that. But the point is, basic law and order and peace in a society is conducive to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Uh, now, it's very obvious that God can build, can and does build His church in very difficult situations. Uh, in fact, a lot of church history is written in that type of situation. But that doesn't mean we can't pray the way Paul told us to pray here. In fact, we should pray. That's what Paul said we should pray for. Uh, yes, God can advance His church in situations of persecution and corruption and all kinds of problems. But it is also true that governments which allow churches to meet freely and evangelize can make a difference in the work of God in the world. We should pray and work for good government and good laws in our land and around the world. Now, you know, we're off into an area that we don't talk about often, and I think sometimes we might even have kind of some wrong ideas about that. So I want to just, uh, I want to read something to you here um, from uh, a man named Wayne, Wayne Grudem, who wrote a big systematic theology book. He also wrote a book on uh, voting as a Christian which is a very interesting book, and I just wanted to read a section to you here because I think this does give us maybe a little different perspective than what we're used to thinking about. 
It's under uh, the heading of good and bad governments make a big make a huge difference in people's lives and in the church. When people say that the kind of government we have doesn't make any difference to the church or to the spiritual life of Christians, I think of the difference between North Korea and South Korea. These countries have the same language, the same ethnic background, the same cultural history, and live in the same location of the world. The only difference between them is that South Korea is a robust, thriving democracy with free people, and North Korea is a communist country with the most repressive totalitarian government in the world. And what a difference that makes in the people's lives. There is just a handful of Christians in North Korea, and they must exercise their faith in secret. Severe, persistent persecution has hindered the church so greatly that there is no missionary activity, no public worship, no publication of Christian literature. Millions of North Koreans are born, live, and die without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. By contrast, the church in South Korea, where the government has allowed freedom of religion, is a growing, thriving, is growing and thriving and sending out missionaries all around the world. It is one of the highest percentages of evangelical Christians of any nation. Um, what is the only difference? The kind of government they have. I don't know if that's the only difference, but it, it, it does make a difference. This is the point he's talking about, the kind of government they have. One country is free and one is totalitarian. He goes on to say, good governments help people to live a peaceful and godly life, and bad governments hinder that goal. Governments can allow churches to, can allow churches to meet freely and evangelize, or they can prevent these things by force of law, like in Saudi Arabia or North Korea. They can hinder or promote literacy, the latter enabling people to read the Bible. They can stop murders and thefts and drunk driving and child predators or allow them to terrorize society and destroy lives. They can promote and protect marriage or hinder and destroy or even destroy them. Governments do make a significant difference for the work of God in the world. And we are to pray and work for the good governments around the world. Pray and work for good government around the world. So I just thought that was a perspective that maybe we don't always hear. And I think that's part of what Paul's talking about here, that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Uh, Maybe just a few verses that came to my, to my mind in relationship to that subject. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. And then Jeremiah, let's look this one up, Jeremiah 29, because this is really this is an amazing verse. If you haven't ever noticed it before. It's, it's just incredible. Jeremiah 29. This was a time when Nebuchadnezzar was coming in and taking the people captive to Babylon. And Jeremiah was prophesying, telling the people, you know, that uh, uh, you need to repent, you need to get right with God. This is coming upon you because of sin. But he also said this, and this is what's amazing in the midst of all this. Um, 
Jeremiah 29, we read verse 4 to begin with. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. So you're going into Babylon, rotten, evil Babylon. And here's what he says if you skip down to verse 7. And seek the welfare of the city where I, I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, or the word could be translated peace, for in its welfare, for in its peace, you shall have peace. Isn't that incredible? He's saying, he's saying pray for the welfare of the place I'm sending you. Pray for the, the leaders there. Pray for the government there. Pray for the people there. Because in their welfare, you'll find welfare. In their peace, you'll find peace. I think that's a, uh, a verse that uh, applies as we think of, of governments that God has us under. Pray for Pray for the people in authority. In their welfare, you'll have welfare. Perhaps Paul was also calling for prayer for those in authority so that the church would be at least partially relieved of any suspicion of disloyalty to the state. The church should be known for respect for governing authorities and for good deeds among the people. Now think about this. We're talking about what the church should be known for out in society. They should be known for respect for authority and good deeds among the people. It's not likely that rulers will think well of the church if all they hear from Christians are derogatory, demeaning, or damning statements of how bad the rulers are. We should certainly not create any unnecessary disturbance related to those in authority over us. Why not? Because we want the gospel to advance. We, we are to obey those in authority over us. We are to engage in good deeds. We are to give honor to whom honor is due. Let's just look at a few verses on this because this is a pretty important subject in, in the New Testament. Let's turn to Titus. Just a few pages over. Titus chapter 3. Again, we have Paul giving some instructions on how the church should function. He says, 3 verse 1, Remind them, the people, the Christians, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. There's that all men again. But the idea is to... Be a light in society to point to goodness, to point to righteousness. Uh, and flip over to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2 and we begin with verse 12. Again, instructions for the church. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your, what? Good deeds. On account of your good deeds, 
as they observe them. I mean, they have to, yeah, he's talking about out in society, they're going to observe Christians doing good deeds, doing good things. As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. There's that Romans 13 again. Punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. There's going to be all kinds of foolish things said about the church. But if the church will pray for the leaders and do good deeds and honor, give honor to where honors do, People will notice that. They'll see there's something different about us. And so, such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. There was all kinds of foolish things being said about the church. You know, that they were cannibalistic uh, because of, of the uh, communion service. I mean, foolish things. How do you counter that? Well, one of the ways you counter that is by just living a righteous, good life in society. Doing good deeds. Uh, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God honor all men love the brotherhood fear God honor the king so these these are things that are brought up often in the New Testament as attitudes that the church should have uh, unfortunately, they're not followed uh, in a lot of situations, and I think we bring unnecessary uh, I don't uh, I don't want to call it persecution here in the United States, but uh, just unnecessary unnecessary antagonism to the cause of Christ, just because we don't follow what Paul said here. <coughs> Well, the main thing for Paul was always the spread of the gospel of salvation in Christ to the glory of God. That was the main thing. That's what he had in mind. That's what he wanted to emphasize. Whatever would advance the cause of Christ was what Paul desired. And whatever would impede the advancement of the gospel, Paul was against. And this is what he wanted Timothy to emphasize to this group of believers at Ephesus. Pray for the advancement of the gospel among all people and do nothing that would inhibit anyone from coming to Christ. We should pray that God would give us whatever type of governing authorities that would allow the gospel to go forth most effectively. It's not always the same. In some situations, that would be authorities that actually bring persecution upon the church. You don't pray for that, but you pray that God would do whatever in your midst and in your, in your situation that would most advance the gospel. You know, we don't understand how God uses things like persecution sometimes, but He does use them. God always has a bigger view of things than what we can possibly have. And He knows what would best advance the gospel in whatever situation we're in. Um, 
just a couple last points then. I would say that this has to be our primary attitude of what, you know, when we pray, we pray along these lines, thy will be done. That is, whatever situation that the government is in, we pray for those in authority, but we also realize that God may have a different view of what will advance the gospel than what we might have. Uh, praying for the advancement of the gospel. We pray for people to be saved, saved for Christ's kingdom to come, and realize that as we do that, this is something that pleases God to pray for the salvation of people, to pray for the advancement of the gospel. I, back to back to First uh, Timothy, just real quickly here. I like the way Paul puts it here. After he talks about this... Uh, thing of praying and petitions, thanksgiving, and treaties being made on behalf of all men for king and kings and all who are in authority in order that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Look how he says this in verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. If we'll pray, if we'll live this way, these things, Paul says, this is good. This is acceptable to God. It's a delight to him. Uh, he desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So may God help us and teach us how to pray along these lines. Um, you know, in relationship to how to pray for the government, I, I actually plan to go on with this uh, next time I speak because it's a subject we don't talk about very much. And we're in the middle of a bunch of political stuff right now, and so I think to get our minds a little clearer on this might be helpful, but uh, you know, even in some of these things that we don't understand too well, uh, if we'll just as best we can go by the scriptures that, that God's given us and ask God to teach us, He'll take our prayers and use them. Even if we don't understand some of the things related to uh, the spiritual forces of wickedness in, in high places and how to pray exactly for the, the government that we're in or, or under. I think God can take our prayers just the way... Well, I, here's, I like the way J.C. Ryle. He's got a section on prayer in one of his books. And he says this, Fear not because your prayers are stammering, your words feeble, your language poor. And we don't even understand exactly how to pray sometimes. He said, don't let that worry you. Jesus can understand you. Just as a mother understands the first babblings of her infant, so does the blessed Savior understand our babblings. Uh, he can read a sigh and see the meaning of a moan. And a lot of times in situations, we hardly know how to pray. But... God can take even those groans and sighs and apply them in a way uh, through our prayers to advance His kingdom and work in our lives. Uh, I like the illustration of, um, you know, as a parent sometimes when your kids are little, they draw, some, make a little drawing for you. And uh, 
you know, it may not be the greatest. It's not ready to go into the Louvre, but it was given to you in love, and you knew that. And that picture, I still, I still have some of those scribblings uh, from my children because they meant something to me. That's the way our prayers are a lot of the time. I mean, they're not, they're not much to talk about. But God loves them. Uh, it's good and acceptable to Him when we come to Him and, and uh, bring these things to Him that are on our hearts. So, Lord willing, we'll go on from there next time.